as we're taking our time and our, our Sundays, morning and evening, look at this great gospel. And you, you know the idea of John is just a young man, maybe 16, maybe 17 years old. He is early in his walk with the Lord. He's been following John the Baptist. He is now giving his allegiance to Jesus. He has been following Jesus from the north in the Galilee down to Jerusalem and back. We know that he saw the Lord's priorities at the wedding in Cana up north and how Mary, Jesus' mother, said, hey, Jesus, they have no wine. And of course, Jesus says, woman, what have I to do with this? Uh, of course, he, he did not come to supply every felt need. He came to die on the cross and pay for our sins and give us uh, an opportunity to restore a relationship, be reconciled in a relationship to him. So we see his priorities, and then we see his power, because he does satisfy the needs of the wedding by producing the greatest and freshest grape juice out of the water. And then we see his passion as he cleanses the temple and has a great desire for holiness and the worship of God, not making the house of God a marketplace. And it's just... Uh, uh, great things that the disciples are learning. Here in John 3, the disciples are, they're with Jesus day and night, right? You agree? They're following Jesus wherever he goes. He's in the Galilee, they're in the Galilee. He goes through Samaria, they go through Samaria. So they must have been listening in on the conversation with Nicodemus. Remember that Nicodemus is a Pharisee, one of 6,000 that was just rigid in, in strict adherence to the law. They not only tried to obey every single law externally, but they made laws upon laws so they wouldn't break the law that they didn't want to break in the first place. So to keep the Sabbath day holy, they made many, 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 many laws so that they would not do work on the Sabbath. They made every little possible thing be work so that they would not even come close to breaking the Sabbath. In the process, they created a great burden upon which nobody can handle, the burden of keeping the law. How many can keep the law? Zero. Not one is righteous. No, not one. There's no man that seeketh after God. God is the one that pursues and seeks after us. So we have all of these truths. And so Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night. The word night in the Gospel of John is often, is actually always used in the, in the sense of hiding something or even some type of negative connotation. So the idea of, of and I, it, nobody knows for sure, but probably Nicodemus does not want to be uncovered that he's really questioning and beginning to be intrigued by who is this Jesus that performs these signs in Jerusalem. Of course, as Nicodemus says, hey, it is impossible for a man to do this without God. Right? Rabbi, I know you are a teacher. Come from God. For no, why do I know you come from God? Because no man can do these things unless God is with him. That's an impossibility. Jesus turns around with another impossibility. Blowing Nicodemus out of the water, Jesus says, Nicodemus, unless a man is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. You cannot. It is impossible, Nicodemus, for you in your law-keeping tradition, no matter how strict you adhere to the law, it is impossible for you to enter the kingdom of God, which I do believe is the literal earthly kingdom for the Jewish people, with the Messiah as the king in Jerusalem, ruling over all this regenerated planet in the millennial kingdom, but also the eternal state, heaven. Nicodemus, you cannot get one toe into the kingdom of God, into the kingdom of heaven, unless you are born again. Wow. So then Nicodemus has this conversation. How can this be? Jesus gives examples of physical birth. 
That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. We talked about that. He talked about the wind, how the wind blows, but nobody knows where it began and where it's going. But yet we see the effect of the wind in the flags, in the trees, in the leaves, in the grass. We see the effect of the, of the wind. In the same way, who can really understand the new birth? We do know this. It happens at a moment in time. It is instantaneous. It doesn't necessarily produce a lightning bolt of feeling. Like for me, it did. I was 26 when I was born again. And so I understood I was dead in sin and then alive in Christ. I was in the kingdom of darkness, transferred into the kingdom of the son of his love. I, I mean, I knew it instantly. Uh, no, it was like, honestly, as powerful, I think as, not as powerful, but just like the road to Damascus for Paul. It was that. My eyes were opened that instantly. It was, so salvation, justification is a moment in time where you place your faith in Jesus Christ. He gives you a new nature. He gives you the Holy Spirit. You are no longer under condemnation, but you are now alive in Christ, clothed with his righteousness, your sin having been paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross. It's a great thing. And then remember how Jesus gives Nicodemus the third illustration, the, the snakes, the vipers uh, with Old Testament Israel in Numbers 21, that as the bronze serpent was lifted in the wilderness so that anyone who was bitten by a poisonous viper could look at it and instantly be healed, So anyone who places their faith in Jesus Christ alone as the object of their faith, his death for their sins and resurrection, will be saved. For God, in this manner, for God, in this manner, so loved the world. He loved the world that he, here's how, that he gave his one unique son, the second person of the Godhead, (coughs) on the cross to pay for our sins, that whoever believes in him, places their faith in him alone, will be given eternal life and shall never, never perish. Isn't that wonderful? It is absolutely glorious. And Nicodemus is now hearing how, the, how to enter the kingdom of God, how to enter heaven. It is not by his works. It's not by his law keeping. It is by faith in Jesus Christ alone. And it's something that we need to make sure we are sharing the good news with everyone in, in, our, in our sphere of influence. So now let's continue on in the text. We're in verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Saying it basically the same thing in verse 17, God said he did not send his son to condemn the world. Jesus did not come to, to produce the judgment sentence on fallen mankind. We have already done that through our birth in Adam with our sin nature. We are already born in rebellion, as Colossians says, with wicked minds alienated from God. So Jesus did not come to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Look at that. Verse 17 is exclusive, everyone. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him, through him alone. It's exclusive. I have no problem with exclusivity. I know our modern culture, political correctness, does not allow for Jesus to be the only way to heaven. The Bible says he is the only way to heaven, and that's where I stand. I want my airplane pilot to be as exclusive as the runway. I don't want him just to land any old way. He's got to land right here. Salvation, justification, uh, reconciliation with the true living God, There's only one way, through him, through Jesus Christ alone. That's how the world will be saved. So verse 18, he who believes in him, faith in him alone, is not condemned. Praise God. You are not condemned. 
All of us who have trusted in Jesus Christ as our Savior, our record of sin has been paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross, and there is no condemnation. There will never be a time in heaven where God will mention one of my sins. He has books of sins that he could lay out in front of me. Doesn't he? He does. He could pull out book upon book of sin after sin. However, there is no record of my sin anywhere. It has been removed completely once for all. Jesus Christ on the, on the cross, right? So he who believes in him is not condemned, but there's a, there's a second group of people. He who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So as I mentioned this morning, St. Peter is not at the pearly gates checking people in and out saying, hmm, should I let you into heaven? Let me look, let me see. No, all mankind without Jesus Christ is already in a state of condemnation. The only thing is the sentence hasn't been executed and people are not perishing in the lake of fire yet. They're dead and in Hades, but soon Hades will be tossed into the lake of fire. So people who do not believe, they are condemned already. Listen, not because of their sinfulness, not because of their sinful deeds, but because they have not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. How many sins has Jesus paid for on the cross? How many? All of them. All of them of the whole world, the Bible says. God loved the whole world. 1 John 2, we have, when we sin, an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. He is our advocate, who is the propitiation for our sins, but not ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. The wrath removing the satisfaction of our sin has been paid for the whole world by Jesus Christ. Isn't that wonderful? So those who do not believe in him will pay for their sins and receive the punishment for their sins, not because they sinned so wickedly or not so wickedly, but because they would not believe the one true way of salvation. It's it's up to us to declare the one true way of salvation, isn't it? So that more will hear and more will believe. So here's verse 19. Here's the condemnation. That the light has come into the world. Jesus Christ has come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light. Here's why. Because their deeds were evil. Why are men not flocking to Jesus Christ? I wonder this. Why, why, like, I'm like, this is the greatest thing in the world. We have a Savior, Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, who when he died on the cross, paid for the sins of the world, suffered whatever I deserve in an eternity, lake of fire, eternal lake of fire. Why would every man and woman, boy and girl of understanding, not go to him right away and say, I believe, I believe, I believe. The Bible tells us clearly. Here's why. Clearly, they don't do that because they love darkness. Their deeds are evil. Really, there's only two deeds. Evil deeds and holy deeds and good deeds. There's, there's no middle ground. Everything we do this week is either going to be an evil deed of the darkness and of Satan, of the sinful flesh, or it's going to be a good deed, holy and noble for God's purposes. Right? I mean, everything is. Everything, either you're practicing evil or you're walking in the light, practicing holiness. There's no, there's no gray area. But people will not come to Jesus. They will not desire the light because they do not want their deeds exposed. Verse 20 says that. For everyone practicing evil, they hate the light and they do not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. Who likes to be told you're a sinner? Who likes to be told that you have sinned against a holy God and failed and deserve a a sentence of condemnation? Well, not many people. Nobody. 
But when we humble ourselves and we recognize that we are, and you know my testimony from 25 years ago when I was saved, sitting in the hospital, I was reading 1 John 1, for if we walk in the, verse 7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. I didn't know what any of that meant. Then I, read, I kept reading. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And I was thinking in my hospital bed, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from sin? I, I don't get it. How can bl- blood only makes things messy? I've never had a cut that makes my life better. It always bleeds and gets something dirty and, and stained. And I thought, how can blood cleanse? And then sin? I'm not a sinner. I'm a good guy. I, I was president of the business club. I did good things. I did this. I did that. I could justify myself that, and I was. That night in the hospital bed, I was like, hey, this has got to be talking about somebody else because I'm a good guy searching for a bad God, and so obviously God's got the problem here, not me. Um, and then I read the next verse. For if we say we have no sin, we what? Deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. At that moment, like a lightning bolt, I realized... I am not a good guy looking for a bad God who's hard to find. I am a wicked, rebellious sinner that a good, holy God is pursuing. And he has now found me. He has now captured me. And I placed my faith in Jesus. It was absolutely awesome. So so verse 21 says, But he who does the truth comes to the light. For those who place their faith in Jesus Christ, they obey the truth, which means we humble ourselves, we place our faith in Jesus Christ, recognizing that we have sinned against him, and we come to the light, we're doing truth that his deeds may be clearly seen. There's going to be, obviously, with the new birth, some life, right? If you don't have new life when the baby is born, you won't see growth. You won't see anything. So how can we have a new nature and the Holy Spirit, and even in this text, the deeds will be clearly seen that they have been done in God. Does that mean that everybody has instant growth and instant holiness? No, that's progressive. Some take a long time to bear fruit. But if you are genuinely born again, then after any length of time, there should be some evidence or some desire. And I know some people would say that that's legalism. I would just say that's, that's, new, that's new life. How can you have new life without some evidence? Even the wind moves and we have some evidence of it, as Jesus said. Well, that's the conclusion, what we have, of the the dialogue where God is speaking to Nicodemus. Jesus is speaking face-to-face with Nicodemus. So let's move on now and finish the chapter. How do we respond to this whole news about you must be born again? If you have not been born again, then the only way to respond is to place your faith in Jesus Christ alone. Stop trusting your good works, some religion, some duties, and trust Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus Christ alone. But now, if you are a believer, if you have been born again, how do we respond to this as a follower of Jesus? Because our whole theme is following Jesus. Well, we're going to look at John the Baptist again. Here's the last text about John the Baptist. He'll be mentioned again in chapter 10. But we need to learn about being born again and being a witness for Jesus Christ. Because so many things can come into our life that hampers our following after Jesus. All right, so let's take a look at this, this next point. It's, it's John the Baptist. All right, hey, real quick, everybody. Remember Matthew eleven eleven. Well, we know Matthew eleven twenty twenty eight. 28. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You know, right? We all know Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. But if you go back a little bit, 
You know what Jesus says about John the Baptist? Jesus says, Truly, there is no man born of woman who is greater than John the Baptist. Like, what? Hold it, you guys. I would think Moses. Why would not Jesus pick Moses? I mean, parting the Red Sea, 40 years of the wilderness, never complaining until the end. Then he gets kicked out of the promised land. and all. But Moses, okay, Abraham. Why not pick Abraham? Father of the Jewish nation. Uh, wait, Noah? Is he not worthy to be called one of the greats? He is like, he should be the greatest. He built an ark for the saving of his household so the human race can propagate after the worldwide flood? But no, out of all the miracle workers and great men of the faith, Jesus says, the greatest man ever born of a woman is John, the Baptist, the baptizer. Interesting, in John 10, 40, get this, everybody. John never did a miracle. John 10, verses 40 and 41, John never performed a miracle. Not one miracle in his whole life. All he did was preach the word. Jesus says the greatest man ever born of a woman didn't even do a miracle. Are we so different, aren't we? What do we love? The miracles. We love the great men who do great things and, and, and have some great accomplishments to their name. But John, John doesn't. He, he really is simply a, a, just a voice. So what we're going to do is I'm going to give you just three main things here as we finish off the text. But let's get into it. Because God loves unity. Satan loves division. Satan loves division. He just loves it. Verse 22. After these things, Jesus... and So now we're moving along in John's... John is trying to show us that Jesus is truly the Son of God, that we may believe in him. After these things, after this meeting with Nicodemus, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea. And there he remained with them and baptized. He doesn't have, I don't think yet, maybe all of his disciples, but those whom he has called are ministering and baptizing along the river. Verse 23, Now John also was baptizing in Ainan near Salim, because there was much water there. And they came and were baptized. For John had not yet been thrown into prison. So it kind of gives us the time frame, also realizing that uh, John is still baptizing and preaching. He's going to be arrested shortly, but Jesus is also preaching and baptizing. Uh, Sounds like competing ministries, doesn't it? I mean, who loves to see another church prosper and grow when, when maybe your church is dwindling in size? Right? Listen to this, verse 25. Then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. There's a discussion. John's baptism was a baptism of repentance toward the remission of sin, and the Jews were used to using water for purification rituals. So which was it? What was, what was going on here? So there was a dispute, a discussion, a division, and an argument. Verse 26, And they came to John, and they said, they said to him, Rabbi, these are John's disciples. Notice, not everybody has flocked to Jesus yet. There's, there's still John followers going on. Can you picture this? They came to John and they said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, who's he talking about? Who was with John beyond the Jordan? Jesus. 
They're not even calling Jesus by name. They're saying, hey, that guy, that guy, that one guy, right? That one guy baptizing beyond the Jordan with you. We used to hang out with him. Uh, to whom you have testified. We've heard you talk about this man. Behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. Do, do you see the problem? John at one time had crowds, massive crowds lined up on the riverbanks. Religious leaders, common people, soldiers, Roman soldiers. He said to the Roman soldiers, you want evidence of repentance? If you have, you know, it would be just all of these things. He's got crowds and crowds and crowds, day after day after day. Now Jesus is on the scene, and his numbers are dwindling, and Jesus' numbers are growing. He started out with just Andrew and John, Philip, Peter, Nathaniel. Five, right? Remember? John 1? Now he is running hundreds. Problem. Big problem. All are coming to him. Yeah, you know what? If I was John the Baptist, I'd be like, okay, you guys, we've got to have a little ministry plan. How are we going to get those people back to us? I mean, we should go 50-50. Why should we lose all of our crowd just because he's on the scene? Let's go 50-50. Let's... And, and by the way, maybe he should move to the north and we'll get the southern people and he'll get the northern Spread ourselves out and we can have our radio ministry and satellite churches and Jesus can be up here and he can do his thing and we'll be happy, but just maybe we should ask him to move away. I mean, this is kind of like what modern John the Baptist would do. But here's what John said. Here's what makes him great. Here's my first point tonight, everybody. Everyone serves at God's pleasure, not our own. Everybody serves in the church at God's direction and pleasure, not ours. Listen to how John responds. Here's why, God, here's why Jesus said John was the greatest born of woman. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. Hmm. John has learned from the Master. Do you remember when Jesus was with Pontius Pilate? Oh. And Pilate said, Listen here, do you know I have the authority over your life? I mean, look at who he's talking to. He's talking to the Creator God. Do you not know that I have the authority, Jesus, over your life as Pontius Pilate, the governor of Judea, under the Roman Empire? And Jesus says, What? You have nothing. You have no power unless it had been given to you by my Father. Don't abuse it. You know that, 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 isn't that crazy? So don't forget this. Your, your sphere of ministry is chosen and given by God. And if he gave it, can he take it away? Sure. John the Baptist, I would say, if he's the greatest born of woman, give him a long ministry. Don't you guys agree? Give him a 40-year ministry or a 50-year ministry. No. John gets like, he gets how many months? It's a short time. John's whole ministry from beginning to end is not a long time. He gets beheaded very soon. <laughs> Some people want gigantic churches and big names, their name on the billboards, their face everywhere, and they will try to do anything in ministry to get there. But sometimes God says, no, I, just, I want you in a small church ministry. I think the whole, really, I think the, the way that God is working through the church 
is not, I mean, he's using megachurches, don't get me wrong. He is, he's, he's using megachurches. But I really think he, he's also using small local churches doing their faithful ministry day after day in their little areas, right? Because as John said, everything that is received comes from the Father. Our ministries, our sphere of influence, your, your, what you're doing, and God can increase that and, and God can decrease it. God can, he's given me a ministry of 25 years and he could kill me tomorrow. He could take me home. He could give me another 25 years. But who, I don't know. But we have to trust him. I love this. So John is saying, if, if my numbers are dwindling, well, that, is the plan of, that was the plan from the start. I was, it was never about me in the first place. It was always about the Messiah. So let's move on to verse 28. Here's my second point. Listen to verse 28 and 29. You yourselves bear me witness. Listen, disciples, you heard me say that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. I'm just a sent one. Verse 29. He who has the bride, he is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. Hmm. Isn't that great? Second point, joy comes from serving God and not serving ourself and our own pleasures. Joy, joy really comes from serving God. You can find some joy in serving yourself, but it does not last. Uh, after the sin or whatever, we've tried to satisfy ourselves. Um, that joy is happiness only temporary. But true joy comes just from abandoning yourself and serving God, serving Jesus Christ. So John says, listen, my disciples, who, at a wedding, who is important? The groom. The bride and the groom are important. The best man, he only prepares things for the groom. And so John says, you guys, I'm just the best man. Jesus is the groom. In the Old Testament, it was Jesus in Israel. In the New Testament, it's Jesus in the church. But John says, hey, I am just the best man. I'm not the center of attention. When the bridegroom and the bride are in the room, nobody is looking at the other attendants, are they? Who's, everybody's looking at the bride and groom. Nobody is, nobody is looking at those who are pouring punch or cutting cake or the attendants in the wedding party. At, even though you have a head table where the whole, uh, the whole wedding party is assembled, who, what are, where do your eyes always gravitate? What are the bride and groom doing? Clink, 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 clink. Oh, they're kissing. Everybody look. Nobody's looking at the flower girl and flower boy, as cute as they are, or the ring bearer. They're looking at the bride and the groom. And so John says, when I hear the bridegroom's voice, that's what brings me joy. Because, listen, if you, are, if you hear the bridegroom's voice, where are you? You're in the same room, right? And so John says, it just brings me total joy to know that I can at least be in the presence of my Savior. To even just hear his voice is what brings me joy. Right? So that's what should drive us and motivate us. Just to be able to hear the voice of the Lord through the Scriptures, that God is speaking to me through the Scriptures, and that my ministry is for Jesus Christ and Him alone. So then he goes on in verse 30, a very famous verse, He must increase, but I must decrease. He must increase, but I must decrease. My prayer is that the older I get, the less everything becomes about me. I mean, it's hard. But, but it ought to be the longer we're living and the more we're growing in the Lord, 
the less really it is about me it's, and the more it is about Jesus. That's the goal, right? We decrease and get out of the way and don't draw attention to ourselves, but he gets all the glory and the increase. And that's really the driving force of every ministry, I think. Every ministry that really glorifies God should be less and less and less about the people and more and more and more about the Savior. So Jesus said, he must increase and I must decrease. Basically, he's telling the disciples, it is awesome that my numbers are dwindling and he's gaining them all. Don't fight it. That is the way it ought to be and that's the way it should be. And that's where my joy is to see Jesus made greater and greater and greater and I just fall off the scene. Do you see why Jesus called him the greatest? Let's continue reading. Verse 31. He who comes from above, Jesus, he's above all. He's sovereign. He who is of the earth, that's John the Baptist. He's earthly and he speaks of the earth. Jesus is like, when it comes to the heavenly one or the earthly one, I always pick the heavenly one. He's the great one. He's the sovereign. He goes on. He says in verse 32, And what he has seen and heard, this heavenly one, Jesus, because he is, he is preexistent, he has always existed, and he's the one who created heaven and he created the earth. He, what he has seen and heard, that he testifies. And no one receives his testimony. That is the problem. We need to listen to Jesus because he's the only true one. He knows about heaven and heavenly things. He knows about earth and earthly things. And what he testifies to in the word of God, that we must believe. But very few people believe the word of God today. So then he goes on and he says, he who has received his testimony, if you do believe his word, that what Jesus says is true, has certified, that, has certified or literally sealed or made secure that God is the true one. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God does not give the Spirit by measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. So my third and last point is this. Genuine humility isn't about saying, God is great and I am a loser. Genuine humility is simply calling attention to Jesus and not drawing any attention to yourself. Because if I say, well, I'm just, I'm a nobody, I'm a loser, what am I really saying? I'm somebody, but I, but I really think I'm somebody, but everybody thinks, well, you know, basically then it becomes about me. So genuine humility simply calls attention to the Savior and totally ignores yourself. And then we end with this conclusion to the whole, this whole chapter. He who believes in the Son has currently, presently, everlasting life. That is the gospel. And he who does not believe the Son shall not ever see life. Ever, ever, ever see eternal, abundant life. But, here's what they get in return. The wrath of God, the anger, the passionate anger of God towards sin will abide on him, will rest and dwell permanently on them. That is very sobering. Right? So Nicodemus, did you learn your lesson? Do you believe that you must be born again or the wrath of God will abide permanently upon you? Well, we know Nicodemus does believe, right? He does believe by the end uh, because he's there at the, at the burial of Jesus Christ. 
And then, secondly, another application is these points about John the Baptist. Are you willing to take whatever sphere of ministry God has given you and give yourself wholeheartedly to it? Like, seriously, wholehearted. Okay, now I want to close here, but when I, when I was born again, it was really strange. I don't, I don't understand it, but when I was 26, as I told you, I was born again on a Friday night, October 1st, 1993. And I knew, I knew, instantly, like my eyes spiritually were open because I, I, I literally had pursued God and pursued God and could never find him on my own terms. But when I came to him, according to John 3, recognizing that he is the savior of the world and I needed a savior, literally, people, like, I would read the Bible and it was like, I get it. I get it. I get it. I get it. I would turn page after page and go, oh, Jesus, 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 gospel, gospel, Jesus, Jesus. And when it came to the church and ministry, I knew right away, this is what God has called us to do. In the New Testament, it's the church age. And I'm going to find a Bible-believing church and commit myself wholeheartedly to the ministry. And, it, I, and I, I never once envisioned pastoring, ever, in the, because I, I'm afraid of people. I, I'm a terrible public speaker. I, I'm actually terrified of doing anything public. It scares me. I mean, on and on, and I could give you a ton, ton of reasons why I should never be doing this. But I, but I did tell the Lord, like, whatever ministry you give me, I, don't even, I, don't even, I didn't even care if it was this. I don't, I didn't, I don't care what it is. I want to do it wholeheartedly for the Lord. And, and he has just been able to use me maybe in different ways that I never kind of even expected. But I'll tell you what, never once have I ever thought the local church is not worth it. I knew right away without anybody telling me or begging me that this is where God is working and this is where I need to be working. I need to be serving, building up the local church, reaching the lost, discipling them so they can reach the lost so we can disciple them so they can reach the lost and we can disciple them and go on and on and on. And have there been times that I've wanted to quit? Absolutely. Because I got my focus wrong and I got my eyes off the Savior. I can tell you that right now. My eyes off the Savior and I'm a wreck. So this is the goal is whatever sphere of ministry God has given you, pursue it with your whole heart. Genuine humility, give attention to the Savior. Make it all about Him and not about anybody here. Not about us, not about anything. Just about Him. Once we get our eyes onto ourselves, division and all sorts of discord takes place. And then, um, uh, hey, let's never forget, there is a lost world where the wrath of God is going to abide on them permanently if they do not respond to the gospel. And if they perish, wow, um, it frightens me. If I think about it at night, and the lake of fire, and an individual being tossed into this boiling pool, 25 million degree Fahrenheit liquid fire, and not just for a little moment, but for all eternity, where their smoke will rise up before the Father Boy, is that motivating, right? Even for your enemies to want them to, to be spared that, right? All right, so let's do our part this week. Let's encourage one another, pray for one another. Um, and then let's see who we can reach this week and let them know, hey, you must be born again. You cannot enter heaven. You cannot. It's impossible unless you are born again. I don't know. Maybe somebody will say, well, just like Nicodemus, well, what do you mean born again? Well, then we can go on and explain Right? Uh, isn't God good? I love the Gospel of John. 
Way different than judges, right? Wow, this is such a, a treat to be able to looking at the Savior. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this assembly of believers, and even for those who are hearing this message, I pray that if they are without Jesus Christ, that they will place their faith in him alone, that they will recognize Jesus as God in flesh, and that he died on the cross for our sins, according to the scriptures. And he did rise from the dead on the third day, and anyone, whoever believes in him, shall be given eternal life. At that moment, life eternal that can never be taken away from them. And for those who reject and do not believe in him, they will perish with your wrath abiding on them forever. Nothing could be more motivating than to see that your love has been given to this world at such a cost. Thank you, Father, for revealing these truths through the Word of God, and thank you for those who have believed and trusted, and and we pray that more men and women, boys and girls, will trust Jesus Christ, be walking in the light, and be following Jesus with a whole heart. Thank you for this very special Mother's Day and all of the ladies in our church and the moms and the grandmothers and great-grandmothers. Bless them, guard them, and keep them during these days on earth. In Jesus' name and for his glory, amen. Wow. All right. Well, praise God.